If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you take them please and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be looking today, the Lord willing, at the first six verses of Scripture, Matthew chapter seven. The title of the message, Inspection, Inspection. Chapter seven of Matthew, beginning with verse one. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. An example indeed of how many times we take the passage of scripture uh, that Jesus um, spoke as recorded by Matthew in the seventh chapter of his gospel. Uh, I don't know of a passage of scripture that is more misquoted and misunderstood and mispracticed as is Matthew chapter seven and the first six verses of scripture. I often hear people say when we begin to express opinions about other individuals or circumstances, oh no, 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 you cannot judge. You cannot judge, you shouldn't judge. Is that what Jesus was saying? I don't believe that it was. I don't think Jesus meant that at all. If Jesus said you could not judge, then what are you going to do with verse six? Verse six says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. Well, he's not talking about literal animals. He's talking about people as we shall see in a moment. So how do you pass judgment upon other individuals? And then what do you do with verse two? Because in verse one, he says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. But then on verse two, he says, well, by the way you judge other people, you're going to be judged. So what is Jesus saying to us here? Well, David Jeremiah, as you well know, a well-known preacher and teacher and so forth, one that I admire and study from a lot, made this comment about the vast passage of scripture. And this is what he said. Our culture wants us to embrace all sorts of evil. The idea behind this tolerance is that there is no absolute truth, no such thing as right or wrong. And to many people, truth is whatever you want to believe. Even though two ideas may be in direct opposition to each other, we are called to endorse both ideas as legitimate and valid but that is not the attitude that Jesus takes in scripture. So in Matthew chapter seven, in the first six verses, Jesus teaches us how to avoid the sin of hypocrisy 
when it comes to passing judgment upon other individuals or other situations. Again, you remember if we were to go back and look at chapter 6 and so forth, Jesus talks about hypocrisy. And you remember that in all of the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is the only one who uses the word hypocrite. And yet you and I use it almost every day talking about those individuals who are hypocrites down at the church and hypocrites here and hypocrites there. We should not use that word as loosely and as freely as we sometimes do because we cannot look into the minds and the hearts of people and to know what's going on on the inside. We judge people by their appearance just as Susan Ball was judged by her appearance and her actions when in reality she was a totally different person than the way that she was portrayed in, uh, on, on the stage and the way that she presented herself. So Jesus teaches us how to avoid the sin of hypocrisy. Uh, and at the time, we are to help people when we try to reach out to them and remove the speck that may be in their eyes. And the question is, can you pass judgment upon other people without being a busybody? Can you pass judgment upon other people without holding the holier-than-thou attitude that you might have toward other people? Yes, you can. It's all in how you look at other people, and it's all in how you look at yourself. And so when it comes to dealing with people, with other people's faults, Jesus teaches us five principles and I've written these principles out for you or had them printed for you on your outline. So let's look at the five principles that we glean from these six verses of Scripture as Jesus tells us, in essence, yes, it is okay to pass judgment or rather discernment about other people provided it is done in the right spirit and in the right way. So here's the first thing. If you're not on the jury, don't try to reach a verdict. I think that's what Jesus is saying in verse one. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Well, uh, I, I know that there are times, uh, and in fact, this last week, I got a notice in the mail to, uh, to, to be summoned for jury duty. You like to go to jury duty, don't you? Where are our judges? We want to talk to them about this. No, just kidding, guys. Just kidding. But we have a responsibility to fulfill our citizen responsibilities when asked to do so, to fulfill them in, in a proper way. But we, we get a jury notice that we are to appear uh, for possible selection to serve on a jury. Um, the, uh, of course, the situation demands is that really it's not your business to form an opinion or a judgment about a situation or a person in a court of law if you're not on the, on, on the jury. It's, it's, it's not any of your business, okay? And, and yet, you know, why, why do we rush to judgment? Well, I think uh, we love juicy gossip, <laughs> you know, but yet we don't, we don't have all of the facts. We think we do. But in reality, we don't. We don't know what goes on in a person's mind or in a person's heart, why they do what they do, why they say what they do, why they are involved in what they do, why they dress the way they do, why they let their hair grow long or, or, or all of these kinds of things. We, you, you remember when 
Samuel went down to Jesse's house to select a, a replacement for Saul. And the first son that walks in, Samuel says to himself, man, he's tall and handsome and strong. And, and surely he's the one the Lord wants. And God said, no, I don't judge people like you judge people. You judge people by their appearance. I don't judge people by their appearance. I look upon their hearts. And yet you and I so many times rush to judgment because we love to gossip, we like to talk about people, and we like to feel better about ourselves when we can begin to compare, well, boy, I'd never say that. I would never do that. You'd never catch me in that place. You'll never catch me doing that kind of thing. And so before you know it, we begin to think, well, we're better than other people, and we would never be guilty of the same things that they are guilty so we're not on the jury, and yet we rush to make a verdict, a decision. After all, some kind of judgment is required, and so we tend to do so to fill the gap. Jesus, I want you to understand, is not speaking about judicial procedures here in a court of law. And as I've said, maybe you've received a notice to, to appear for jury duty, and you go through the process of lawyers asking you questions and deciding whether or not to select you to be on the jury. And if selected, then you become a member of the jury, and you hear the evidence, and then you decide on the innocence or the guilt of the person. But if you're not on the jury, then you should not rush to judgment and make a decision. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking about a different kind of judging. He's talking about making a judgment against someone when you're, uh, in other words, he's talking about when you're making a judgment against another person when it's none of your business. That's what he's talking about. Don't make a judgment if it's none of your business and if you don't know all of the facts. Before you pass judgment on anyone, remember yourself that you don't have all of those facts. There just might be a part of the story that you don't know, and most likely it is not any of your business. And again, quoting Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 16, and when they entered, he looked at this young man and he said, surely this is the Lord's anointed, and God said, no, I don't judge by appearance. I want you to keep your place at John chapter seven, uh, in Matthew chapter seven, but turn to John seven twenty four. John seven twenty four. This is an important verse of scripture when it comes to judging other people and situations. John seven twenty four says, John seven twenty four. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So you see the, and those are the words of Jesus. Here he says in verse 1 of chapter 7, don't judge lest you be judged. But now he is saying in John 7, 24, if you're going to judge, make sure that it is righteous judgment. So if you're not on the jury, you don't have to convict. Notice number two. As you judge others, you will be judged. You know, judgment is like a boomerang. <laughs> You throw it out, it's going to come back to you. It sure will, kind of like kids. <laughs> when they graduate from high school and go off to school, they come back home. <laughs> Boomerangs. And, and I think the Lord is saying to us uh, in, in verses 1 and in 2 that if you pass judgment on another person, be careful how you do that. Make sure that it is right 
or righteous judgment because it's a boomerang and it's going to come back on you. It did to David, you'll know. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. You know, David committed the sin of adultery. He took another man's wife, committed adultery with her, had a child by her, and thought that he was getting by with it until Nathan the prophet showed up, sent by the Lord. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, this is what the Bible says. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to David and said, there were two men in the city, the one a rich man and the other one a poor man. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. It grew up together with him and the children. He would eat of, its, of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And he was like a daughter to the man. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Notice David's reaction in verse 5. David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And now look at verse 7. And David said, uh, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul, also gave you your master's house and your master's. And so he goes on to talk about all that God did for him. And he said, now you took another man's wife, committed adultery with her, had her husband killed so you would be exempted from any shame that came about it. It came back on David. I think that's an Old Testament example and principle that Jesus is teaching us here. Do not judge lest you be judged because by what measure or standard of judgment you use in passing judgment and criticism upon other people, that same measurement and standard of judgment is going to be used when it comes for judgment day and you stand accountable to God for your life and what you said and what you have done. It's going to come back on you, folks. It will. And I think if we were to ask for testimonies that any of us could stand up and say, yeah, I remember one time when this happened and, and it all came back on me. It boomerangs on you. James chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2 says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Oh, how we love to talk. We, we love juicy gossip. And we need to be careful what we say and our attitude and actions about other people and other situations, especially if we don't know all the story and have all the facts and the information you remember what Jesus said when we looked at the Beatitudes? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Another way that Jesus was saying to us, if you're kind and gentle and humble and merciful toward other people, God will be kind and gentle and merciful and humble toward you. 
But if you are harsh and cruel and mean and hateful and vindictive, well, it's going to come back on you. It's a boomerang. The way you judge other people, you will be judged. And don't think that you're going to escape judgment. It's coming. It will come. You will stand before God. And you will give an account for your life, what you say, what you do, and the motive behind all of it. Notice number three. Look at your own faults before you look at anyone else's. Look at verses three and four. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. Now notice a couple of things about these two verses of scripture. Uh, of course, one, one guy has a speck, a, a little speck in his eye. The other individual has a huge log or a plank in his eye. The little speck just takes up just that, a little speck of, of, of area in, in his eye. But the plank is broad and it covers up the whole eye. So if your eye is totally covered up with a piece of wood, how are you going to be able to look at the speck that's in your brother's eye? Notice also that the speck and the log both come from a piece of wood. So it may be that the guy who has the plank in his eye, who is so hard and critical about this fellow with the speck, is guilty of the same thing that the guy who has a speck in his eye of, and he's trying to cover up himself by pointing out to the other guy. And notice, too, that the person who has only a speck might be more capable of helping you get your plank out of your eye before you try to get the speck that is out of his eye. Oh, never thought about that one before. Both a speck and the law must be removed the person with a speck-sized problem may actually be in a better position to help the guy with the log than the other way around. This means that when you notice a problem in somebody else's life, you may have to ask that person to help you with the same problem that you've got in your own life. So you need to look at yourself before you start trying to help anybody else. You remember in the eighth chapter of the gospel of John, when this woman was brought to Jesus who had been caught in the very act of adultery. I tend to believe that it was a setup job. I know it was from the scriptures that that's the understanding that I have of it. I often wondered, where's the man in this situation? Eh? Uh, she was caught in the very act of adultery, which means the man was there too. But where's the man in all of this? He's not there. So they bring this woman to Jesus and uh, uh, they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says she should be stoned to death. What do you say? And Jesus stooped down and rolled in the sand. And uh, those guys began to look at one another. And Jesus stood up and said, Whichever one of you is without sin, 
Let him cast the first stone. And boy, they scattered. Why did they scatter? Well, we don't know. I don't know what the Lord wrote in the sand. Don't know if I'll ever will know. I'd like to know. Maybe someday the Lord will tell us. Maybe we'll know when we get to heaven. I don't know. I don't know what he wrote in the sand. But again, passing judgment. Were they guilty in some way of the same sin of which they had caught this woman and set this woman up and the situation up to try to trap Jesus into saying the wrong thing? After all, you remember, Jesus said, you don't have to commit the physical act of adultery to be guilty of adultery. If you've got lust in your heart, you're guilty. Hmm. Guilty of adultery in the heart and in the mind. That's what Jesus said. And so we need to be careful even, you know, when we try to go help a person. And I think that this is uh, what Jesus is also implying here that it's not, it's not that we can't help other people. We'll, we see that in a moment. He says, what you need to do is first deal with the problem in your own life. Then you'll be able to help the other person. And when you do so, you need to remember the principle that is set forth in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. In Galatians, and just turn to it just quickly for a moment. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So a couple of requirements here then, if you are going to to help someone else who's got a problem in their lives and a sin. It's not that you can't go to them or shouldn't go to them. You, you, if you love your brother and you care about them and you want to help them, yes, you should. But notice the qualifications are, first of all, to be spiritual. And that doesn't mean a holier-than-thou thing. It just means that everything between you and God is what it ought to be. To be spiritual means that you are full of the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is control of your life. That He fills you. Because when you are filled with the Spirit and you are controlled by the Spirit, your thoughts and actions and motives are going to be proper. Because you're not there out of a human nature. You're there out of a spiritual nature. So make sure when you go to that individual that you're having concern for, that you're not presenting a judgmental or holier-than-thou attitude, but that you are going through them in spiritual conditions, in humility. And then he says when you do it, be gentle. Don't be harsh. Don't be cruel. Don't be vindictive. Be gentle. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, is it not? Galatians chapter 5. The Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness. So make sure, make sure that you are spiritual when you do so. So look at your own faults. Make sure that you are right with God. Maybe you have the same type of problem. Maybe you've got another problem that may be just as bad, if not worse than what that person has. You need to make sure that your own life is right before God before you try to help somebody else.
Number four, limit your advice to do as I do, not as I say. It's not that Jesus wants us to abandon the idea of helping someone become better. It's that he wants us to do it with integrity. And so you don't say, well, you know, don't do as I say, do, you know, do as I do. This is why some parents have no influence over their children. Why should your child know that when you call in sick to work, that you're not really sick? You're just not, you're telling a lie. When, when they witness you telling a lie to your spouse, when you tell the ticket clerk at the theater that your son is 11 years old when in reality he's 13 or 14 and you're just trying to get a cheaper prize, these things add up and then you wonder why when your son leaves the house he laughs because uh, you're trying to get him to tell you where he's going when he leaves the house. Why should he trust you? Don't do what I say. You do what I do. Practice your own preaching. Jesus is not saying that we can't help other people. Look again at verse 5. Verse 5 says, you hypocrite, you two-faced individual, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There won't be any cloudy mist over your eyeball or over your heart or your spirit when you get right with God then you'll see clearly what needs to be said or needs to be done and then here's number five the last one it's a sad one as of course all of these you might say are but this fifth idea don't waste your words on those who will not listen that's what he's saying in verse six look at it do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. You know, it is a sad truth that there are some people who just don't want to get rid of their speck. They like it. They want it to be there. I remember when I was studying about this, another type situation, but in the fifth chapter of John's gospel, Jesus shows up at the pier, uh, at the pool of Siloam. And there's a guy there who's crippled. He's paralyzed. He hasn't been able to, to move for years. The first thing Jesus asked him is, do you want to be made whole? Well, uh, duh, <laughs> I've been paralyzed for all these years and, and an angel comes down and stirs the water but before I can get in there, I don't have anybody to help me and somebody else jumps in and they get healed and so all these years I've been, yeah, do I want to be healed? Yes, I want to be healed. But you know, there's some people who don't. There's some people who relish in their illnesses. They love to be sick because it gives them attention. And so Jesus said, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? You go to an individual, do you want to be saved? No, I got no interest in it whatsoever. No. You know, before you, you get somebody saved, you got to get them lost. I heard an evangelist say that one time. You got to convince that 
that guy, he's lost. He's got to get to the point in his life that I'm lost. I can't do it myself. I can't save myself. I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. And you got to get, as we say, to the end of your rope and you realize there's no way out but Jesus. So you got to get them lost before you can get them saved. They've got to realize they need to be saved before they can be saved. You want to be made whole? You want to be forgiven? You want to be healed spiritually? Well, you know, in the third chapter of John's gospel, and I'll just refer to it because third chapter of John's gospel, notice, notice what Jesus says. John chapter 3 and verse 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and notice men love the darkness rather than the light. Hey, there's the reason why there. There are people who love to do what they're doing. They are in darkness and if they come to the light, they've got to give all that up. Got to give up the drugs, got to give up the alcohol, got to give up the illicit sex and the immoral life. All that you got to leave, that's what repentance is. Repentance is you turn away from all of that and you turn to Jesus. And there are people in this world who love their sin too much to give it up. And it's those kinds of people that you have to be careful about how you present the gospel to them. Now, let me point some things out to you about verse 6. Notice the words holy and the word pearls. Be careful, he says, going back to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. Holy and pearls symbolize the righteous things of God. It... it Value, it shows what's valuable in life. Here, here they speak of spiritual and moral values in life, such as the word of God, purity, honesty, faithfulness, integrity. These are those things in the world that the world hates and treats scornfully. Now notice the dogs and the swine. Uh, I like the word hog is... Logs and dogs and hogs that he's talking about here in the passage of Scripture. The dogs that he's referring to are not the little precious, sweet little animals that you caress and hold in your lap and let them lick all over your face and you pet them and take care of them and spend hundreds of dollars when you take them to the vet and all that kind of thing. He's not talking about those kinds of pets. He's talking about the dogs that run wild in the streets who feed off of dead animals, dead bodies, the kind of dogs that you would have found out in the Valley of Gehenna, you know, the garbage dump of the town where the unclaimed bodies of criminals after they were executed or just nobody wants them, so they just throw them out there and, and garbage and dead animals and the bodies that are rotting and decaying and the fire burns all the time and there's smoke and stench and the dogs are going out there and they're fighting over the dead animals as they're hungry and feeding on them. They're the kind of animals that you dare not reach down to try to pet because they'll snap at you and they'll bite you. Then you'll get infected and die. 
There was a woman who came to Jesus on one occasion and, and, and asked to be a part of his kingdom. And Jesus said to her, you don't cast the bread to dogs. The word dog there is the word that talks about these wild dogs that would roam the streets and would be dangerous. It's a word of contempt. It's a word that talks about the worst kind of worthless individual that a person can become. When David went out to face Goliath, you remember what Goliath said to him? He said, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the dogs of the field. When David uh, was being chased by Saul, he could have taken Saul's life on many occasions, but he chose not to. He said, I'll not raise my hand up against the Lord's anointed. You better be careful how you criticize pastors and preachers and teachers. I'm not saying that if they're scandals and mean and hateful and immoral and all that, I'm not saying you can't pass judgment. You just be careful, not just preachers and teachers, but anybody listen to what David says when he talks to Saul and this is what he said, after whom, why do you come after whom, after whom has the king of Israel come out? To whom are you pursuing, a dead dog or a single flea? David was taking the dog term to refer to himself. I am not worthy. Why you, the king of Israel, are chasing a dog like me? When Mephibosheth, you remember Jonathan's son, after Saul and Jonathan were killed and David, because of his friendship with, uh, with Jonathan, wanted to do something in memory of Jonathan. And he asked, is anybody living that's still alive from the family of Saul? And they said, yes, Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, he was crippled because when he was a child, the nurse picked him up and ran and fell with him. And he was a deformed person. And, and so David begins to treat him like his own. And Mephibosheth says, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? When David was fleeing Jerusalem because of the rebelling of Absalom, a man called Shemai called David all, uh, uh, all kinds of names, cursed David. And... Um, uh, his, his guard, Abishai, said to him, why should this dead dog curse the Lord my king? In Deuteronomy 23, verses 17 and 18, the New Living Translation says, no Israelite, listen to this, no Israelite where the man or woman may become a temple prostitute when you are bringing an offering to fulfill a vow, you must not bring to the house of the Lord your God any offering from the carnage of a prostitute, whether a man or a woman, for both are detestable to the Lord. A temple prostitute was from the Canaanite worship in which women gave themselves as acts of worship. A man, a homosexual, the word in the Hebrew language is the same term that's translated dog. So we're talking about dogs and hogs. Hogs were utterly detestable and an abomination to Jews. They were forbidden for sacrifice. They were legally considered unclean. They represented the filth and the vile of humanity. Hogs love the scum and the dirt and the mud. You can take a hog out of the mud and clean him up, put a ribbon around his neck, spread him with perfume, turn him loose, and he'll go right back to the mud hole. He loves it, loves to wallow in mud and slop. 
the violence of it, he says, they will trample that which is holy under their feet. Wicked men have no respect for the holy things of God. They despise the things of God. They, they, they use God's name in profanity. They take God's name and just curse. They have a lousy sense of spiritual values. And he says they will turn and they'll tear you to pieces. Just like a dog, a wild dog or a hog. Well, you say, Pastor, that's... Where does all this fit in? Well, let me, let me give you an example of all this. And the example is Jesus. You ever read in the Bible where it says that Jesus spoke in parables so that men could not understand what was being said? I think he was practicing this principle. There are just some people who don't understand, don't care to understand, don't want to understand the spiritual things of God. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. You have to be spiritually minded to understand spiritual things. The natural man doesn't. So Jesus spoke in parables for those he knew would take it and receive it as opposed to those who would turn against it and use it against him. He instructed his disciples, Jesus did. He told his disciples, when you go out to preach the gospel and you go into a city and they reject it, Whoever does, does not receive you nor hear you words as you go out of that house or out of that city, shake the dust off your feet. Now, what in the world does that mean? That was a symbolism of judgment. You have heard the gospel. You have rejected it. So we'll just shake the dust off of you. And in the Jewish mind, you were no better than a heathen. Just shake the shoes, the dust off your shoes and off your clothes. This happens. We don't have the time to look at it. My time is up. But just write down Acts chapter 13, 44 through 52, and Acts chapter 18 in verse 6. Two examples in the New Testament of the early church where the disciples preached the gospel, rejected by the city, and when they left the city, they took their shoes off and shook the dust off of them. Judgment was coming. In his transfiguration, Jesus was not transfigured so that everybody in the city or in the country could see it. Not even all of the disciples were privileged to go and see only three, Peter, James, and John. They were the only three who saw Jesus transfigured. Nobody else saw it. Furthermore, when Jesus was on trial, you remember? And he stood before Herod and Antipas. The Bible says in Mark chapter 6 and verse 28, excuse me, Luke chapter 23 and verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about Jesus and was hoping to see some sign performed by Jesus. In other words, Herod wanted to see him do a miracle. He had heard about all these miracles that Jesus had done. But when Jesus stood in the presence of Herod, you know, he could, have, he could have performed. I think he could have done something. Oh, Herod fell to his knees and embraced him. Jesus chose not to perform a miracle in the sight of Herod. You know, 
what Herod did to John the Baptist. He had him beheaded. Why? Because John the Baptist said, you are an adulterer. You took another man's wife. And then when Salome danced before him, he said, I'll give you half of the kingdom if you'll let me have her. And she said, all I want is John's head. So Jesus wasn't about to perform a miracle, not that he was afraid. Why should he throw pearls before swine? And, and Herod was a pig. Not only that, it says when Herod questioned Jesus and interrogated him, are you the son of God? Are you a king? It says Jesus refused to answer him. No holy power before an unholy potentate. No pearl before that polluted prince. Not everyone is fit for reproof. You waste your time and endanger yourself trying to rebuke the incorrigible. Proverbs 9, 8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs 23, 9, so do not speak in the hearing of a fool for he will despise the wisdom of your words. So not everybody wants to hear the gospel. Not everybody wants that speck removed from their eyes. They love it to be there and don't bother me. And so you have to, you say, well, what do we do, pastor? I think you just have to trust the Lord to guide you in it, be spirit-filled, follow the leadership of the Lord. And if God should impress upon you to not speak to that individual, then don't. His blood will not be on your hands. Now let me wrap all of this up and make this one final comment and then we'll give the invitation is this. There is a day of judgment coming. But you don't have to be worried about other people judging you. A day of righteous judgment is coming when Jesus will stand as the true judge. The true judge. The Bible says in the words of our heavenly father that he judges no one but has assigned the judgment of all people to his son, the Lord Jesus, whom he has raised from the dead. Acts chapter 17, I believe it's verse 31. So judgment day is coming. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you are considered as a lost person. And you will stand before what the Bible describes as the great white throne judgment. That's the judgment before whom all lost people who are not Christians will stand and will hear the condemnation and sentence passed upon them. Depart from me, your name is not written or found in the book of life into everlasting damnation. And you'll spend eternity in hell forever separated from God. But there is another judgment place that Paul talks about in his Corinthians letter that's referred to as the Bema of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ. That word Bema comes from the practice of the Olympic games where when one run a, ran a race and won it or threw a disc or a javelin or whatever and he won, he would stand before the judgment bench and he would receive his crown or reward, whatever award, whatever it was. The crown would be just olive leaves woven together like a crown and placed on his head. It wouldn't last only a little while, shrivel up and die. 
But he would stand before this judge's seat and, and he would receive his reward. Well, that's what Paul uses when he says, as a believer, you're going to be held accountable for your life. You're going to have to answer to God for what you do, what you say, and the motive behind all of it. And you will stand before him and will receive whatever he judges to be the right way to judge. You don't have to worry about Jesus making a mistake. He is a righteous judge. And listen, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 that Jesus will judge the secret things of men's hearts. So you think all these things that you've been doing behind the scene and nobody else knows, Jesus knows. And he's going to judge you. And you're going to be held accountable for your life and for what you do. I'll not stand in judgment of you. You'll not stand in judgment of me, but we'll all stand before Jesus to be judged. Be careful by what measure and standard you use in judging other people will be used to judge you. Let's bow together. Wow, what a, a negative note, Lord, it is to end on, and yet hopefully an encouraging word. Because if I'm going to be judged, and I will be, I'd rather you do it than anybody else I know. Because you're going to be fair and holy and just, and you'll do what's right. And I know that I'm going to be held accountable for the person that I am, and what I've done, and the sins that I've, I've committed. I know I thank you for the blood that you shed for me that covers all of my sins. I, I'm not going to be held accountable for those things because the judgment that I deserve was, was placed on you. It fell on you when you died for me on the cross. And I thank you, Jesus. Glory, hallelujah, for your shed blood, for your death on the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ. And so I pray today that if there are those here who do not know you as Lord and Savior, O Spirit of God, speak to their hearts. Holy Spirit of God, bring conviction to their hearts and lead them to repent of their sins and turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please, and come if God is leading you.